Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Lori Flores, one of your hosts for this podcast. And today I'm talking with Maria Montoya, the author, one of the authors of Global Americans, a history of the United States, which is a new textbook that just came out in 2017. Hi, Maria. How are you? Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me. So we are talking to Maria from Brooklyn. We both live in Brooklyn, so I just came over to her house to see her and her adorable dog, Marcus, who's <laughs> sleeping on the floor next to us. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm so glad you could talk to me today. Great. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about this book in particular because I just think it's so exciting to have a new textbook in U.S. history. And this thing is massive. So this thing is over 800 pages and it just looks fantastic. Um, and I know you worked with some other professors all over the country to put this together. So can you tell me um, a little bit about your co-editors before we get into the book? Yes. Yeah, so um, I have, uh, let's see here, five other co-editors. Um, and we started this book, um, three of us, two of us started, Lon Kurashigi and I at University of um, Southern California. He and I started this project probably over about 10 years ago when we first um, were approached um, by then Houghton Mifflin uh, to do a new U.S. history textbook. And then over the course of that 10 years, um, we gained a few other authors. Uh, First of all, Steve Hackle uh, from the University of California um, at Riverside um, came on as the colonial um, historian. Um, And that was really important to us. We wanted somebody um, who didn't do New England um, history, who didn't do East Coast history, but somebody who came to colonial history from a borderlands perspective, from the American West perspective. So once Steve came on, I think we felt like we really were beginning to get at one of the big themes of the textbook about how to make this not only global, but continental to really tell a complete history of the United States. Um, the next couple of people who joined us uh, were Laura Belmonte, um, who's at um, Oklahoma uh, State University. Um, she does most of the foreign policy and does uh, the later part of the U.S. history, the last few chapters. Um, and she brought a really interesting perspective uh, to the book, not only from her foreign policy standpoint. Um, she really kept us all on task and made sure we were really hitting all those buttons throughout the textbook. Um, but she's really an expert um, in uh, queer history, lesbian and gay um, history, um, particularly how it pertains to foreign policy and issues around HIV AIDS um, and uh, globalization. Um, so that was a very important voice to have um, in the textbook as, as well. Um, the fourth person we brought on uh, was Carl Guinari, uh, who's at St. Mary's College of California. I think uh, Carl has worked on a number of projects uh, before. Um, he is really, I think, sort of one of the intellectual backbones of the uh, book. Um, he kept us always on task, thinking that we were always coming back to the same themes, that we were really um, telling the story that we wanted to tell in a coherent way. And he had had a lot of experience teaching the U.S. History Survey, working on a number of pro- other projects 
um, as well. And I think without Carl, it, the, the book would not have had the kind of coherence that I think it's, it's had um, because of him and also because of Ann Grog, uh, who was our uh, one of our real main editors who helped us pull the book together. Um, and then uh, the last uh, person that we brought on uh, was Ellen Hardigan O'Connor, um, who I'd known since University of Michigan. She'd been a graduate student there, and she does through the Revolutionary Period, early 19th century uh, period, um, and has written um, a, a massive uh, compilation um, in U.S. women's history. And so having that voice, and again, and I think the way that Laura um, made us always sort of keep that foreign policy theme going, um, Ellen was our conscience about really making sure that women's history was it wasn't women's history. It was U.S. history, yeah. and women were an integral part of that. Um, right. So I think, you know, people brought all kinds of different things to the project, and it wasn't just about the chapters they were writing, but making sure those themes really were pulled out through um, through the rest of the textbook. So um, it was a big project, and people with really diverse points of view um, yeah. and interests as we, were, as we were pulling this together. That's great. And I want to ask you more about collaborative work towards the end of our conversation, but I wanted to properly acknowledge all of your, um, your co-authors here, co-editors, because I think it's, it's such a monumental task to bring people together and create something like this. And um, so a big shout out to the other people involved. Um, Maria, I wanted to start by asking you a little bit more about yourself, just so um, that our listeners get more familiar with you if they haven't been already. So um, can you tell us about yourself? Where are you from? Where did you go to school? And what has been your path in academia up until this point? Okay. Um, I, I think maybe I'll start by telling you what I'm doing uh, right now. So um, in addition to being um, an associate professor of history at NYU um, in New York, um, I'm also the dean of arts and sciences at NYU Shanghai. Um, so I've been in Shanghai for the last year, and I'll probably be there for the next uh, two or three years, um, working on this really incredible project of um, sort of like a globalized higher education um, that's about training international students. Fifty uh, percent of our students are Chinese students, and um, and I like to start with that because I don't think China was any place that as a kid I ever thought <laughs> I would end up being. So um, I, I often walk around Shanghai thinking, God, how did I how did end? Up, how did I end up here? Um, I don't speak Chinese. I have no sort of uh, background um, in, wow. in Chinese. Um, we'll miss so, you. Yeah. We miss you in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> I miss Brooklyn, too. Um, so I grew up in Colorado. Um, I grew up right outside of Denver in a suburb uh, just west of town. Um, my father um, worked for the Atomic Energy Commission. Um, so we moved from Albuquerque to Denver. He worked at Rocky Flats um, his entire career. Um, through um, through the seventies and the and the eighties, and so I was a suburban um, high school kid um, who uh, had never really been outside of Colorado or Denver. I think the farthest east I'd ever been was uh, Kansas. I think we'd driven to Kansas uh, <laughs> once to visit some far far flung family members who left, you know, the the homeland of New Mexico <laughs> and uh, and Colorado. So. Um, I was fortunate enough um, to be admitted uh, to Yale, and so um, at 18 years old, my parents put me on an airplane and sent me off to, to Yale, and um, I ended up on the East Coast, and I had never seen anything like that before. Instead of having, like, these, you know, super blue skies and, you know, 
clear, Mountain. clear mountains, you know, really beautiful landscape. Um, New Haven in the, in the early eighties <laughs> was, uh, not the most beautiful place in the whole world. I was completely overwhelmed by how much green there was and how wet and humid it was. I'd never been any place like that before. <laughs> um, and I think I was also just blown away by the whole culture of an Ivy league school. I think particularly in the early eighties, that was a very weird time to, you know, I think we're some of the first people to, um, people of color, um, who right. were, who were attending Yale. Um, certainly, um, even just having women at Yale I was know, still, a, it wasn't too far out. No, it's like been like 10 years that yeah. women had been there. Uh-huh. And so that was all very, uh, very, very weird. Wow. Um, and then I was totally freaked out by the fact that there were all these kids who already knew each other. Right. So yes, all these, that's what freaked me out too. When yeah. I was an undergrad, all those prep totally. school kids, yeah. like, oh, they all knew each other. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know any, I don't know anybody within a thousand miles of this place. Mm-hmm. How could that or they all came from the same school in New York yeah, or yeah. something like that. It was that. incredible. Yeah. Um, so I was really taken away and taken aback uh, by uh, by that. Um, but I had a great experience. Um, I, I It was really hard, um, and but I also really um, enjoyed my time there, and I learned a ton. Um, but I think probably what I learned the most about was the place I'd come from. Uh, and I got very into um, my classes, particularly in the history department, um, and got to know Howard Lamar um, and Bill Cronin um, as an undergraduate, and Catherine Morsey, who then was a graduate student and was teaching this uh, class called uh, Creating an American Home. Um, and so I ended up writing about the place I came from in, in this paper, and I thought, wow, this is incredible, you know, that you can learn about your own place in this academic, uh, an academic way. Um, I think one of the most reassuring moments I had was I walked into um, my first art history class that I'd ever taken, uh, taught by Vince Scully, the great oh, Vince you're Scully. You're so lucky. I never <laughs> got into that class. But one of the <laughs> first slides that Vince Scully shows is um, a picture of Taos Pueblo um, and then with the mountains uh, behind it. Yeah. Um, and then he just goes on this amazing rift about sort of, you know, vernacular architecture. And I thought, wow, the place I come from has meaning beyond what I see in that place. It has this kind of intellectual meaning. It has this aesthetic meaning. And, to, you know, to have your life sort of have this kind of intellectual um, um, reverberance to it was really exciting. I mean, it, it was really an eye-opening um, experience. That's so cool. You know, you never forget that moment. No, no. When you see home in a different way. Right. It's, yeah. Right. It just, it just completely opens, um, opens your mind. So, um, the other thing was, you know, it was the early eighties and everybody went into banking or into, uh, <laughs> in, into business. You know, it was, it was, you know, greed is good. Gordon, Gordon Gecko. And so I was, a you know, I was a good girl and, um, I was set to go to Columbia business school and I graduated, uh, from Yale. Um, and I was all set to go. I had a job working for Trammell Crow in New York city, um, in Bridgeport. And I did that for three weeks, four weeks. <laughs> Um, and then decided that I did not want to be a real estate developer and I did not want to go to business school. And so I quit my job and I told uh, Columbia I wasn't coming, but I didn't tell my parents uh, that. Oh. And um, I luckily uh, got a job for the summer because I was hiding from my parents. Um, we are more alike than I thought. <laughs> so I lived in New Haven hiding from my parents. I got this amazing job um as like the you know this is when you actually had um receptionists mm-hmm. um and i was the receptionist for the yale librarian um and oh. my job was just to sit at the front and answer the phone nice. and i typed up some things <laughs> but i had two great jobs uh that i got to do with that job one was i became the book runner uh for barbara tuckman um who was living in new haven and she was writing i can't remember which book she was writing, it was one of her last books that she had written um and she would just call up 
and she would say what book she needed. And I would go up to the stacks and I would go, you know, go up, grab all the books that she needed and, you know, walk them up, uh, you know, up uh, t- towards Orange Street to, to give her her books and take the other ones back. Oh, you physically her. delivered? That physically, she was quite elderly by then. Oh. And, I, and, and, and I, I think she must have been very good friends with the librarian. So this oh, was wow. something that they did for her. So, oh, cool. So I would go and chat with her and I take the red. I was like, wow, people make money writing history. Who knew? That's like so incredible. Um, and then the other great thing that happened to me is that George Miles, who was then the curator at the Beinecke, um, he had a weekly meeting with the librarian. He'd come in, he'd sit and we'd start talking. Um, and he just, you know, over the course of like three or four weeks, these you know little conversations that we had, I thought, wow, you can get a PhD. You could uh-huh. go to grad school. You could actually do something you really love to do. You don't have to go to business school wow. and, and do that. So um, it pays to show up early. It does pay to show up early. <laughs> so, you know, I came home um, at the end of the summer, told my parents I was not going to business school. Um, they were devastated. I think they could not believe they had spent all this money for me to go to Yale. And it was <laughs> probably going to pay off. And no, I decided I was going to go to uh, graduate school. What? So so I worked for the fall and um, I showed up in January at University of New Mexico and they took me and um, I was there for about a year and a half and just really got into Western history, met some amazing people, um, you know, really started thinking about the project that I wanted to do um, and then was admitted back at Yale. And so went and did my, my PhD at, at Yale and worked with Howard Lamar and uh, Bill Cronin and Sarah Deutsch. And um, I was really fortunate to be able to, uh, to do that. So. Wow. I never knew any of this about you. <laughs> I mean, maybe I knew pieces of it, but right. to hear the whole story in totality, that's awesome. Yeah. So I feel really lucky. I mean, you just, yeah. you, you know, I'm so thankful for people like George, for people like, um, I can never say enough incredible things about Howard Lamar, you know, who just like this, you know, epitomizes sort of the kindness of what it means to be a, um, a mentor uh, to, to people. And he was a mentor to, you know, to, to students who did, work that was so far afield from him. You know, he, he didn't care. If he thought you had something interesting to say, he was just so nurturing in the way uh, that he would help you uh, do, uh, do your work. So, um, yeah, so I was at Yale, and um, I got my first job um, really um, right after. Um, I had not even finished my dissertation, um, and I got my first job at the University of Colorado, um, and I was there for um, three years, um, finished my dissertation, um, got that done. Um, and then went and I taught at uh, Michigan State University for a year. And then I was at Michigan for, for 12 years before coming to, um, to NYU. So um, I've been really fortunate. Um, mm-hmm. I, I consider myself very lucky. And I know most people aren't that lucky to have to, yeah. to get those jobs. And um, um, it was it was it's been a great it's been a crazy ride. Um, and then this this whole China thing has been really interesting as, yeah. um, as well. So but you knew you were putting together this textbook way before you knew you were going to China. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you know, the textbook started, um, as I said, about almost 12 years ago now, um, when I was at Michigan, um, Oh, all the way back then. Oh yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, And the way I got approached to do it is, um, at the university of Michigan, uh, the way they ran their U S history surveys was the youngest faculty member who had been hired, (laughs) got thrown into the U S history survey um, which at that point was about 300 students um, in a big lecture hall. That's intimidating. Oh, totally intimidating. And um, I'd been at Yale, uh, both for undergraduate and graduate school. And as you know, there is no U.S. history survey, because why, why would you ever have to know the whole sweep of U.S. history? <laughs> uh, and so I realized very quickly, like, there were some really 
deep blocks that were missing <laughs> from my uh, uh, from my uh, uh, historical narrative, uh, shall, shall we say. Um, so it was a complete shock. You know, so you have 300 students, and on top of that, you're managing six to eight graduate students who are teaching sections. And you're writing all of these new Writing lectures. brand new lectures. I have my first set of lectures. They're <laughs> laughable. They're so horrible. Pass them on to me when I, <laughs> when I have to teach my survey. Um, and it was completely, I would have an anxiety attack almost every time before each of these lectures um, because I was really flying by the seat of my pants and um, was not prepared uh, to to do that. Um, And luckily, um, Houghton Mifflin, um, who then um, had um, a couple of different books, but at that point they had People in a Nation, um, Mary Beth Norton's book. And this rep, um, Irene Biber, I still know her. Um, She she thinks she just recently retired. She basically took me by the hand and she said, this is what you need. You need a textbook, you need to, and this is just the beginning of like making slides, you know, using PowerPoint. Um, She's like, here's all the things you need. You'll be fine. You know, just, just do this. So um, she was great um, because boy, nobody else was really that, um, that, that helpful. And it was a really difficult place to teach the survey. Um, You know, this is sort of like late eighties, early nineties. This is sort of like the peak of, um, you know, I would say it's sort of like uh, the beginnings of sort of like conservatism on campus. And, you know, I was telling a historical narrative that was about slavery. It was about Indians. It was about women and students didn't always like it. Mm-hmm. And so I got lots of, you know, comments like, um, this isn't real. This isn't real history. history. Why, why, yeah. why didn't we spend a whole day on the JFK assassination? Well, because actually that's not really that interesting, right? right? It's horrible. It's a turning point in, you know, this particular moment in American history, but it wasn't illuminating the kind of things that I was really interested in, in talking about. And mm-hmm. so I think that was really hard for me um, to, uh, to tell um, an historical narrative to them that I thought they needed to know that I thought was important for them. Um, but which really sort of pushed against what I think was um, the classic sort of AP U.S. history that they might have been exposed to, which is very much about facts and presidents and, you know, these very sort of, um, I would say, basic or mm-hmm. um, ideas. So. Um, that was really hard. And I, you know, I did that almost every year for about seven or eight years teaching the U.S. Um, history Gosh. survey. And so I think I, the I taught, whole time you were a junior professor. Yeah. yeah the whole time. That. Wow. I was like, then that, that's what you did. And, and I, I think I told my students this year when I taught, I think I've taught this course like 20 times at this, at this point, you know, and then, um, you know, my, my notes are like in all the little pieces. I add these different things, you know, <laughs> they've all kind of, all kind of changed. And so, um, so, you know, after doing that for about five years and, you know, being very close to this um, book rep, um, Irene, um, she put me in touch with their editors and, and she told them, she said, I think this person, you know, I think she has something to say. I think, you know, I think we're ready for a new U.S. history textbook. You should talk to her. And so and she also knew Lon, I think, or somebody else knew Lon. And so they put us together and we started mm-hmm. talking um, to them about uh, about about the textbook and and putting it together. And by this point, had your uh, first book come out? Yeah, the first book had just come out. Um, and remind so, us of the title. And so it's um, Translating Property, uh, The Problem of Land to the American West. Um, it's about the Maxwell Land Grant and the idea of sort of how property regimes um, are in conflict with each other at the latter part of the 19th century in the American Southwest. And by um, this point, Lon had written... Lon had finished his first book also. I think we were brand new associate um, professors. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and you know, she tells, Oh, this will be easy. You'll get this done in a couple of years. You'll finish your second book. Yeah. I'm still, <laughs> at, 
I'm finally going to finish my second book because I've been like, bogged. you know, this is like a fourth and fifth child is what this textbook is like. Um, so, yeah, so we started doing it and it was, um, I think what it ended up being was something a little different than what we started out uh, wanting it to be. And um, when we started, I think Lon and I in particular really had this idea that when we opened, if, if we could do it all over again and we were a high school student or a freshman um, taking a U.S. history class, that we would want to open up the textbook and see ourselves in the textbook. We want to see our family's history. We would want to see our region's history. We would want to see our community's history inside that. And, and textbooks really weren't speaking to that. And you, and you think, and you know, my background is, you know, I have a family, you know, that has been, you know, what's now the United States for generations, hundreds of years. They were here long before it was the United States. Um, you know, I would say more American than anything. Right. And yet, you know, my family story, my region story very rarely shows up in a textbook like this. Um, so what would it mean to really not only just put those stories in as injections, you know, into certain places, right. but to really reconceptualize um, U.S. history um, in a different way? What, what would happen if you looked at it from up here and really took all these regions seriously as you began to tell the narrative of, of this, um, this nation? Um, I think bringing on Steve Hackle was really interesting because this was a battle we had over and over again. Um, and he kept saying, it's not U.S. history. It's it's North American history. And, you, you know, by calling it U.S. history, you're favoring the nation state. You're saying, like, you know, you have this teleological drive towards the nation. You know, it's, it's going to happen in 1776. And he kept saying, I can't tell a narrative pre-1776 that leads us to that. There's right. no reason for us to think that. Right. Um, you know, and so he lost that battle. He fought it valiantly. And, you know, he kept wanting to call it, you know, uh, a history of, you know, North uh, North America. And, you know, oh, interesting. And the marketers kept saying, I'm sorry, it's a history of the United States. It's the only way this book is ever going to right. sell. And I think if you read the textbook, um, if you read the first, you know, I think, what is it, six, six or so chapters, um, the students should come away in no sense thinking that, the rise of the of the U.S. nation state is inevitable. Um, that it's right. a constant competition between um, native peoples um, who have a lot of power, who have a lot of agency, um, and these various European um, nations who are, are who are battling in this in this area. And so um, that was really important to us that that be the, the central part of the early part of the colonial um, narrative. Right. Um, it's also, I think, the only U.S. history textbook. Um, in which the first chapter um, has no Europeans in it. It's entirely, that. It's entirely yeah. about Native peoples in the first chapter. It's about yeah. their lives. It's about their trade networks. It's about their culture. It's about the world that existed in its, all its complexity and diversity before Europeans ever, mm-hmm. um, ever showed up. Um, and that's not meant to be a throwaway chapter. I think it's meant to really set the stage for what the book is about, um, and that you have to take all these early pieces seriously to understand the way um, the way it develops. Well, I get the sense that nothing is a throwaway chapter here. I mean, I, I was looking at the organization and the structuring, just the intense structuring of how you had to put this narrative together and everything seems necessary. Um, and the different vantage points as historians, what, like you said, what we're trying to get our students to understand from the get go is contingency um, negotiation, all of these things that, um, can help us see that the U.S. did not necessarily have to look the way that it does today right. and why 
why and how did we get to the U.S. looking this way right. today? Um, so I think it's really important that anybody picking up this textbook or adopting it or using it in their classes or basing their own lectures off of realizes that all of this organization was very deliberate. Right. The, the vantage point from which you start, which is Native peoples rather than European, uh, is incredibly important. Yeah, I think um, you know, the other thing... You know, you said at the beginning how big it is. Um, it is big, um, but the other thing it does, and this is this is sort of a new thing in, in U.S. history textbooks, um, is that there are only twenty eight chapters, um, and so the idea is that really you could do it in two fourteen week chapters. Textbooks have tended to be sort of in the thirty two to thirty four mm-hmm. uh, chapter mm-hmm. uh, range, and it was very important to the marketers and to Cengage, who's the publisher now, um, that it be knocked down into twenty eight um, chapters, and so that means that. You know, there's there's a lot going on um, in these chapters. Big right. swaths of time are covered. Um, big themes are covered. We juxtapose some things in ways that um, I think other historians haven't done that to get people to sort of uh, re, re, rethink it. Um, it's also a textbook, I would say, um, that doesn't make the Civil War necessarily the breaking point. I mean, I think the Civil War will always, you know, unless something drastically happens the next 10 years, um, we're all stuck with the Civil War as the breaking point um, in U.S. history uh, surveys. Um, I think as historians, we know that that's just not that's not a reasonable way to think about U.S. history um, anymore. There's too much complexity before the Civil War. All these things that sort of happened. Um, there's a whole long period of time after the Civil War, you know, that we, that we don't have we don't get time to cover because we have to do all this stuff right. at the beginning. So, you know, things like, you know, the War of 1848, um, the U.S.-Mexican War, uh, the Spanish-American War those become really important points in the textbook um, as well. And I think this is a textbook that eventually, I think someday we will move to a U.S. history survey that maybe three semesters, um, right, that you go sort of to 1848, 1848 to, um, you know, say the Depression or, you know, World War One, and then have a third um, section as well. And, you know, I think there's, there's beginning to be some discussion um, about that. And this book would would wear well um, in that kind of long-term way of thinking about how we re-periodize and rethink um, U.S. history, uh, which I think you have to do. I think once you know, once you stop taking the North-South binaries the way we tell U.S. history, and you take the West seriously, um, you take the Pacific Rim seriously, um, it makes you rethink the periodization of how you how you tell the story. Mm-hmm. So, did you find working with all of these different? scholars and all the contributors who wrote, you know, some sections for you, did you find any resistance or pushback, you know, beyond the, let's call this a North American history rather than a U.S. history? Were there any other uh, arguments or conflicts over how do we uh, include certain things, leave other things out, choose to leave some stuff out? I think one of the best things about doing this is in the middle of, I'd say for probably about three years, um, maybe almost four years, um, we were having conversations every two to four weeks, um, about an hour, hour and a half, um, in which we were all reading each other's chapters. And so we were all lined up to like turn in your chapter, um, you know, and have everybody, um, and have everybody read it. Um, and boy, that was, that was difficult, uh, because, you know, you'd write your chapter and you'd be so wedded to it. You'd think it was perfect. Um, and people would say, no, you forgot this. You know, I think you could do it. You know, maybe we should tell the story this way. Oh, you love that person, you know, as one of the global <laughs> Americans. That person doesn't do that at all. Um, you know, and so it was really difficult. And I have to say, 
um, you know, we're all still friends. Um, and, um, which is an amazing <laughs> thing amazing. to say. That's an amazing thing to say. That's not to say we did not have some serious, uh, conflicts um, about totally. how, to, how to do that. Um, and particularly at the breakpoints where, you know, people wrote sections, um, you know, they had a block of chapters. Um, and so your block would do, you know, you finish your block, but then your block had to match up with the next, you know, right. next block. So how to get those overlaps and how to re-periodize and re-think about that. Um, you know, the basic things, think about how you use words. Um, what's the terminology that you use? You know, can you call, you know, you know, what do you name somebody? How do you label somebody? That has to be something. I think we must have gone back and forth about the word feminist uh, for, you know, six months. You uh-huh. know, when when could we actually start using, start using term? it? Yeah. It turns out you can actually use feminist, you know, early in the 19th century. You know, when we somebody had to go do all the research. I probably Ellen who convinced us that it was okay <laughs> to say feminist. But then we had to have a conversation about that in one of the um, other things. So it was, it was really interesting. It was great. As I said, you know, going to Yale and never having had a U.S. history survey, all of a sudden I was talking to these amazing people and learning, you know, the real intricacies of, of periods of history um, that I didn't really, I, I had a complete life from about 1789 to about 1840. I wasn't quite sure what happened there. It turns out it's like one of the most fascinating periods of history. So much goes on in that, um, in that, in that period. Um, so it, it, it was really great. And they were, they were really meaty discussions. They were about historiography. They were about content. They were about narrative, about the way you tell a story. Um, and, you know, this is a very, um, it's, it's a different kind of writing. So you have to show that you're versed in all the historiography, right? So you know, you know that period really well. You know what the debates are. But you can't say that, right? You have right. to tell a narrative a story that is basically at about the 10th or 11th grade level. That's what you're writing this, this narrative at, but that reveals and shows that you understand the complexity of what U S history is in terms of the historiography behind it. Um, and, and that's a hard thing to learn how to do. I mean, it's a different kind of writing than we do in our monographs where, you know, we're all about exhibiting how smart we are and how much we've read. And you mm-hmm. can put that in the sort of and name dropping and name dropping yeah. all those things. And, and they are, you can't name drop in this, you know, you right. can't say Eric Foner says this about the construction. These high school students be like, okay, yeah. <laughs> who's Eric Foner? Do I have to remember that on right. the test? Will that be on the test? <laughs> Had any of you who worked on this book taught at the high school level in the past, like in past lives? I don't think so. Um, I don't think anybody had taught at the high school um, level. I had been, the last few years I was working on this, um, I'd been on the AP U.S. History um, that, yeah, that's right. curriculum um, mm-hmm. on the development committee for that. Um, and that was really useful to me um, because I you know, got to meet a lot of um, AP U.S. History student, uh, teachers um, who are incredible at what they do. They know so much about U.S. history. Um, and so it was great to talk to them and be able to say, you know, would this reverberate with your students? You know, how would they, you know, would they understand this? You know, mm-hmm. you know, what, you know, um, how much would they understand? And I think, you know, I would say that this book is really geared. Um, I see the market for it being um, particularly community college um, students. Um, so, you know, I'd say places like Texas, um, California, the American Southwest, the American South. Um, I think that's who's going to be the kind of student who will, um, you know, places that are really educating incredibly diverse groups of students, immigrants, um, Mm -hmm. first generation students. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this is who that book, this textbook is supposed to um, speak to, that that you can find your immigrant story in this, that you can find your place in America by, by looking at this textbook. 
So you can definitely see this being used by college instructors, you know, look, referencing stuff for their lectures, recommending right. it to students who may want to do some additional work, yeah. work reading, yeah. familiarization. Now, the other thing about the book is that it's the first book that Cengage has done where um, the e-version and the website was um, done at the exact same time. Um, and so we all, all of us also did all the website uh, work um, and the platform uh, for that as, as well. Um, so they're very integrated um, with each other. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to me now. Um, do who wants, you know, I think, what is this weigh? We should go weigh it. Probably weighs eight or nine pounds. No, I didn't want to lift it. <laughs> Nobody wants to look that around. Sore. And now you don't have to look it around. You can download it onto your iPad and you mm-hmm. can listen to it on your way. To oh, really? Oh, computer wow. student. oh, that's awesome. And that was really important to us that somebody should be able to put it in their pocket. And if they're yeah. a commuting student, they can listen to the. Absolutely. They can listen to somebody read it to them while they're on their, on their commute and they can do everything on their, you know, on their mobile device or on their iPad or whatever they have. They can do their homework all completely integrated. It has all these things that go along um, with it. And we were, it was very important to us that we were very much integrated into that process. We did not want that um, done by the marketers or by, um, um, or or people that we had sort of tasked um, that too, but that the, the e-version was really reflective of, of the content um, that was in, in the book. So. I'm so glad to hear that. I work at a very commuter-heavy school. Right. So students would love this. Yeah. And, and even me to refresh myself on certain things. Right. You know, it would be great to just listen to a portion sure, of it. Sure, right. It's like, oh, I need, I was like, oh, I need to remember. That yes. little, I can't remember what that <laughs> Which agencies was it in the first New Deal that I need to remember? Oh, yeah, I can read those. Two, <laughs> somebody will read me those two sections while I'm sitting on the train and, yeah. and, and do that. And, yeah, so it makes it really easy to sort of pick up. That's that, great. Um, pick up on that mm-hmm. um, stuff. And I think, you know, that was a real, I think writing this book made us really think about where, sort of community college students are they where your average university student is today how are they getting information how much time do they really have um, to engage in a, in a book like this um, and if you make them lug this around they're not going to lug it around mm-hmm. it's going to sit in their locker it's going to sit at home and they're not going to really engage right. so no that's great and it also you know for students who um, have different learning styles different learning abilities yeah. having different ways of Getting this book to people, right. I think, is super important. So that's great to hear. Uh, I wanted to ask you about two particular features of this book that I thought were really cool. The first is, um, you mentioned this briefly before, the Global Americans sections or profiles that you guys included in yeah. Uh, lots of different chapters, and also this history without borders component that you see sprinkled throughout this book. So can you tell us a bit about those two features? Right. So I think these were the two features that are the most unique um, to uh, to the, the book. Um, and Global Americans was one of my favorites. Um, and the idea was if you, to be a global American, um, you had to be somebody who um, at one point lived in the U.S. You might, you know, citizenship is such a fuzzy thing. Mm-hmm. And they're, so you made your citizen, maybe you weren't a citizen. Um, but somehow you were tied to this place we think of and uh, call the United States. Um, but you also had to have had some experience um, abroad, like either you were an immigrant or you had some sort of cross-cultural um, experience. Um, and so uh, we picked, you know, if you look through these, there's some, you know, you know, your typical sort of 
white guys uh, who are here. Um, J.J. Hill, who was the great uh, railroad entrepreneur of the Great Northern uh, Railroad, um, but he was Canadian. He, you know, did the sort of cross boundary um, global capital things and the way he developed that. So we talk um, about uh, about him. Um, and then there's some people who are just kind of weird that you wouldn't necessarily think of as um, uh, people who should show up. But I'm trying to find um, this guy because he's one of my favorites um, here. Michael Jordan's in there. Oh, my favorite, David Tran. Um, that's what I was thinking. About. I was wondering who David Tran was. Do you know who David no, Tran is? No, I don't. David Tran is the guy who uh, created Sriracha Sauce. No way. Yes. Oh, awesome. And he's Sriracha has made it. Yes, Sriracha has made it into U.S. history. <laughs> and he has this incredible story. He was a, he was, a, he was brought over um, on, on a boat. Um, he was a refugee from Vietnam and, um, decided that everybody needed to have sriracha sauce, oh, you know, awesome. and sriracha sauce is like, it's more popular than ketchup now. Um, totally. The and there was a point where salsa was more right. uh, consumed than ketchup. Right. So the way yeah. that, you know, he sort of totally influences American taste. Totally. Um, and he, the other amazing thing about him is he never patented it. He never cared if people used it. And of course his, you know, his thing was the red rooster. Right. Um, and that was his iconic thing, but you know, he didn't patent it. Um, if you want to do knockoffs of sriracha sauce, it's fine with him. He's made a gazillion dollars sure. uh, doing uh, doing that. Everybody has it on their keychains. Yeah, of course. You know, so <laughs> you know, so thinking about people like that, you know, Thurgood Marshall, um, Amerigo Paredes, um, Milton Friedman. You know, for the conservatives out there, you know, so trying to really balance the uh-huh. kind of people who are global and who we thought of them um, as, um, as. I loved as like uh, literary figures too, Anne Bradstreet, right. James Baldwin, right? You know, all, these are great profiles. Paul Paul Robeson, um, you know the 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 early ones, um, you know William and Charles Bent, uh, the uh, the fur trappers in the early part of the nineteenth uh, century. Um, one of my favorites is um, Carmen Alvarado Domingo Giardelli. Um, yeah, I yeah, that. Yeah, so chocolate, chocolate, yeah. Um, it turns out she was the businesswoman behind her husband was the chocolatier, mm-hmm. um, but she was the one who kind of was the, oh, the real businesswoman of thinking about how to market chocolate to, you know, to Californians, uh, during, uh, during gold rush, a Western so, food store. Yeah. Yeah. So these were really fun to sort of, you know, start finding. And now I find them all the time. So we're always collecting new ones or like, Oh, you should think about this one, you know, and, uh, and, 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 and think about that. And I think the idea is to get people, you know, it's particularly at this moment where, you know, there's all this rhetoric about, you know, being an American is just being somebody who's here in, in you know, this anti-globalization, anti-immigration. Um, and these are meant to show that people have always been incredibly connected to other portions mm-hmm. of the world, you know, either through their families, um, through the businesses that they're creating. There's always been this amazing connection between um, North America, the United States and the rest of the world. And, and people that we think of like Clara Barton, you know, these people had really amazing um, outside connections. And so we shouldn't be afraid of that. And we should think mm-hmm. about re- refocusing our minds that, mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. And and the borders component definitely speaks to that as well, right? Right. That the U.S. has not always been this insulated, bordered place. And Americans have not been either. Right. So, yeah. So the other big feature that we worked on, um, it took us a long time to grapple with which features we were going to uh, end up keeping um, as we did this. But this one I think was really important. It, it, it came out early and we, we stuck with it. Um, 
and I think probably spent the most time and put the most resources um, into these. Um, and these are called History Without uh, Borders. Um, and the idea was to take some theme, um, in some cases a commodity, like wheat is one, I think sugar um, is one, obsidian I think is one of the first ones um, in mm-hmm. Chapter 1. Um, some were about ideas of feminism, um, communism, um, and think about how the United States was connected to the rest of the world through either ideas, uh, through commodities, uh, through uh, uh, revolutions, um, prophecies, um, events. Um, so thinking about the ways, sort of the, the intellectual and, commod- and commodities and the way that they uh, connected. Mm-hmm. Um, the maps are incredible um, in the book that show these connections. They're really um, kind of in-depth um, when you look at them. There's a lot of information. We spent a lot of time crafting. These were all brand-new maps that we put um, put together. Um, they're even better in the e-version because they're interactive. Um, oh, so the cool. bubbles kind of pop up at different places, and you can do all kinds of different um, different, uh, different things with them. So, That's great. Um, yeah. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty proud of those. I think these were the, the, the I think they really encapsulate, um, what we were trying to do with the book mm-hmm. and, and making it global and thinking about these larger, um, larger connections. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so excited for this book to, you know, to see it in more classrooms, both in high school and at the college level. I just think it's so important, you know, right now, um, as you probably know, in Tucson, they're having you right. know, those court hearings over ethnic studies and certain books being prohibited uh, from being taught because they're thought of as dangerous or spreading right. <laughs> radical ideas. Right. Um, the way that we show our students what American history is and has been and what it should include and what it hasn't included in the past Textbooks are really powerful things. Right. And so I'm so excited that this one is out in the market now. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of crafting the book was it's, I think somebody, in some ways I worried the most about somebody who'd been teaching the U.S. History Survey for a long time. I would say, I can't change my narrative that dramatically. I can't make the switch. What you're asking me to do is just completely, you know, not going to work for me. I've been doing this this way for so long. Um, I think somebody like that would read this textbook. And we always said um, the, the, the textbook has this very, in some ways, a very conventional political spine to it. So you can always, a student can always sort of find their place in sort of the typical AP U.S. history narrative. You know where you are um, in time and place in U.S. history. Um, but we're asking you to sort of push those borders and sort of reach out beyond those and, and, and think about that. So, you know, all the presidents are here. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. Don't worry. They're all here. Um, you know, all the politics, all the things that, you know, all the wars, all the wars are there, all the, you know, great fathers, you know, are, are there as, as well. Um, but we're asking you to look at them in a completely different way, right? And put them in context of, okay, what else was going on, um, at the, um, at the same time, and I, you know, my favorite one is like, you know, the the American Revolution chapter starts um, with uh, this boat sailing to China, um, and at the same time, you know, the the founding fathers are trying to grapple with the revolution. They're also trying to grapple with these global, you know, networks that are being created at the, at the time, and they're they're trying to think about trade. They're trying to think about how they balance their place in the world and not, you know, just their the the mm-hmm. incident thing in which they're um, in which they're dealing with. So, um, yeah, I, I think it, it asks. Students and it asks professors to do a little bit more work, but it's 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 meant to come from a place where you feel comfortable taking that that jumping off point to do that, and would get more students interested in history. I, I hope think. so, right, right? Because a lot of my students say, "Oh, history was my least favorite subject right. in high school. It was boring, or it went too fast, or I didn't I didn't get it, I didn't get it, or there wasn't enough complexity." 
and it's at the college level where they can really delve into things. But right. I think what a book like this does, it gives that multifaceted, multi-perspectival view on things that can satisfy students who want to know more. Right. Okay. Yeah, the idea is that you could take something in here, you know, every every image was chosen for a particular reason. Everything can give you a jumping off point to and it's meant to stimulate you in, in different um, in different ways. You think, oh, you know, I didn't really I didn't think of that. You know, I didn't, you know, it never occurred to me, you know, that that was a part of uh, of, of history and you could you could do something with that. So mm-hmm. yeah. So in closing, how would you what tips would you give somebody who's thinking about Maybe not a project as big as this or just any collaborative project. Right. Would you um, give what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's thinking about collaborating with other people? I think it, it takes more time than you think it will. Um, you know, as I don't know, as historians, I think we tend to be pretty insular. Like we like our own little world and, you know, you create worlds within your narratives and your own, uh, your own, uh, your own book. Um, and working with other people requires you to be, um, to take the time to do that, um, but also be more flexible. I mean, I think I really had to rethink a lot of the things um, that I thought about the way I wrote, um, about the way that I told stories, um, and being really open um, to that. Um, and that, that was a really good thing for me. Um, I think it made me less fearful of writing. I, I don't think I I can't ever imagine having writer's block um, again. Now I just don't have time to write, but I don't fear writing in the way I used to before. Um, because you just would, for this, you just kept writing and writing and it would get rewritten and people would, you know, tear it apart and put it back together. It's like, oh, look, that that's okay. That mm-hmm. turned out perfectly, mm-hmm. um, perfectly fine. Um, I think, you know, as, as long as it's taken me to write my second book, um, and I hope I'll say this when I finally finish it, um, I don't think I could write my second book without having done this book. Um, I think I just have such a much better grasp of the complexity of U.S. history and, you know, the various themes that are running through it and talk, you know, being able to talk to these five other people all the time, um, which is really, really um, helpful. And I think I have a, I have a deeper appreciation and deeper understanding for U.S. history than I've, than I've, than I've been able to have before, um, before this. Um, but I think I mean, the bottom line I would say is like if you're going to do a collaborative project, you have to do it because you want to do it. That you want to be collaborative. Um, you can't do it for you know the money may or may not make money. Um, you probably will not win glory doing you know a you know an edited collection or you know or a textbook or or anything like that. Um, but it's it's a really interesting way to um, to do the kind of work that we do, and I think it's good for us not to be so insular um, and not be so attuned to our, our little project that we're working on at, at that time. Well, that's a great note to end on. Okay. Maria, thank you so much for talking with me today. Great. Thank you, Lori. It was really fun to have you over. And Marcus slept through the whole Marcus thing. slept through the whole thing. <laughs> Marcus listened to the podcast later, though. That's your homework. <laughs> uh, so again, the title of uh, this textbook, this exciting new textbook, is Global Americans, A History of the United States. And we have been talking with Maria Montoya. Associate Professor of History at NYU and the Dean of Arts and Science at NYU Shanghai. I've been Lori Flores, your host for this podcast. And if you like the New Books Network, keep following us on Facebook, Twitter, newbooksnetwork.com, and be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Thanks so much.